Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're talking with founder and director of innovation, Nicholas Hamakin from Hamakin Cellars. And we're going to be talking about crafting wines for the consumer market. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here today. Thank you, Robert. I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and why you founded Hamakin Cellars. Yeah, I'm a Danish-born guy, and my background is a cellar master. I worked in a big company, a grocery company in Denmark called Taste of Wine. And I did my business study at the same time. And my post-graduation experience was that uh, I was traveling, working in Germany, uh, in Mosul. I worked in Burgundy, Bordeaux, and I worked in Penedes, where they're doing all the cover. And that's how I fell in love with Spain. Before I came to Spain, I took a detour because of love to UK. I worked for a company owned by Seagram called Utbins, where I basically learned all what I used today because I started to work with consumers. Coming from a technical background and as a commercial background, suddenly to be faced with consumers, what sort of uh, excite them, what intimidating them about wine was a major journey for me. But all I learned from that when I was a young guy is something I still use on a daily basis. And so that's my background. I fell in love with Spain when I was in Spain and Penedes because I was like this sort of lost older son coming back to my parents with the family. So I was treated like a family member, this family. And of course, then you get curious about this country. And Spain at that time, when I came, had just entered the European Union. So it was sort of a young virgin country, a lot of optimism, a lot of positive energy. And I thought, wow, I love this country. So when I worked in UK and did my uh, work at Utbins and also at the same time did my studies, I always had sort of Spain in my mind. So my girlfriend, now wife, she is a dentist, Lotta, she got a job in Spain. I thought, wow, it could be fun to go down and, and try to explore Spain. And when you think about it, in the 90s, there was a lot of very nice Spanish wines. They had that kind of little thing about, they were a little bit rustic. There was sort of a lot of sun, a lot of spices, a lot of everything, but it was not sort of in a very balanced way. But underneath that, you could taste the great potential this country had. And that's what I really sort of intrigued me. So when Lotte in 96 got a job as a dentist, I had the opportunity to begin my business. And I was a young man at 25, had an idea. I would like to explore what Spain is all about. Had an idea what it would turn out to be. No, I didn't. But that's uh, how life sometimes plays small tricks on you. We should clarify for our audience that Nicholas is in Spain. Which part of Spain are you in and is Hemmick and Sellers based in? Hamilton Cellars is based in uh, Comunidad Valenciana, which is uh, where the capital is Valencia. It's on the eastern side of Spain, so it's facing towards the Mediterranean Sea. 
So if you sort of from where we have our little office, we would face the Balearic Islands, which is Mallorca, Ibiza. So we're in a beautiful countryside, very nice weather. So eastern side. And from there, our winemakers live in different parts of uh, Spain. They love to sit in their car and they're responsible for each area of Spain. So your motto for hammock and cellars is modern Spanish wines. You produce modern and innovative Spanish wines with a portfolio focused on branded products developed through the understanding of consumers' needs. What does this statement mean to you? Well, basically, it means that we are respecting the history of each region, but sometimes we go in and say, okay, how can you sometimes make it even better and sometimes deconstruct certain things? So try to put history, respect history, but also take all the data you can get nowadays from, um, we have a work close relationship with a company called Global Data, and they give us those sort of macro and micro tendency in the market. And from here, we can go in and see how has the evolution been of organic products the last five years in UK, for example. So we can go in very specific and find out what is the need, what is the trend. So we're trying to combine something which is a little bit scientific with all these data. At the same time, we're trying to respect the region, but make it up to date, if I may say. That's our approach. Right now, you export 1.5 million cases of wine to 30 countries. I'm curious if you could give us a high-level breakdown of what that product mix is in terms of what kind of wines you're making and also which are your top markets. Very good question, Robert. It's actually changed quite a lot because historically, I'm from Scandinavia. So we've had a lot of historical links with Scandinavia and we still have a lot of historical links. Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Finland are monopoly countries like Canada. We've done and are doing quite a substantial business there. I'm from Denmark myself and we're doing a lot of business there. Countries like Germany, Holland are big countries for us, but also U.S. market, Canadian market, a very important market to us. And of course, we can't ignore the Asian markets are very consistent. Japan has been a very, very strong, strong country for us for many, many years. And then you have the giant China, who has become a more consumer country, not only giving presents, but actually a real consumption is happening now, which is very interesting to follow. From we started exporting these wines and producing these wines, we have changed quite a lot. And I can say that last year, 50% of our production suddenly is organic produced wine. So from being a little niche thing for us, it's become a major factor for us. So organic wines, sustainable wines are something that is uh, on top of our mind. And it's something that we would like to continue go down that path. I'm curious, given a couple of things here, I'm curious on the different markets. Obviously, you said you're targeting wines that because you understand the consumer's needs that you mentioned a lot of markets. And I have to imagine that those consumers demands of a product are quite different by market. And I'm curious on which ones are most unique in terms of their consumer preference in those different markets and that you have to make something fairly bespoke for. I would say if you can sort of imagine if we sort of take a Ford as a car model of a Ford and it looks the same as a model, but if you open the bonnet, it's quite different. And it's a little bit the same with our culture, cultural background. If you take sort of from Europe to America to Asia, and if I take sort of in maybe in Europe, we would have a slightly more lean style of wine, where in the US, you would have looking for a slightly riper style, a little bit more bold. And that's very important to understand these kind of differences because it's also got to do something with our local cuisine. That sometimes we have some countries that prefer a little bit of spices or it's very sunny countries. So that really, really, it's all these things. We try to 
have a base. We would like to have a clear demo of our base. And from that, we have various components we can play with, which we keep separate because we know the cultural difference. So profile as such as the same of the wine, but the fine tuning is the difference. I hope it makes sense. That makes perfect sense. In terms of the move to organic, that sounds like a large shift over the last few years for you. So I'm curious, and which markets are driving that change in your portfolio? Or is it just a global trend that you're seeing that all consumers globally are looking for more organic wines? Yeah, I would say Northern Europe really were driving it. And it was particularly the monopoly market that decided to give a preferred distribution for organic wines. And that helped the movement. But now the movement in many countries is not only organic wines, organic milk, butter, and it's sort of a mindset of a lot of people. And luckily, if we take US and Europe, the European market have become a lot more aligned. So now we don't have all kind of silly legislation playing against us. Where you call it sustainable in the US, we call it organic in Europe. But we more or less aligned. And it's the same approach we're having with the different things. There can be some legal matters that we need to sort out. Before it was quite complex. Now it's this is actually much more straightforward. But I would say Northern Europe paved the way to other markets. If you take US, it's very much whole food, big companies like that, that has made it possible and paved the way for other companies to follow through. So we'd love to dive into your product development process to better understand how you develop wines based on a consumer's needs. Perhaps you can walk us through a concrete example of how you developed one of your wines. Did you start with a specific market in mind? Many times, obviously, it's a bit sort of pancake kind of approach that we've put on layer by layer. It's not something that happens overnight. It's through many years that you understand your markets. But that being said, there's sometimes some shifts that happens in the market and suddenly there's a trend. Something like uh, Greta Thunberg occurs, different kind of things, and then suddenly explosion happens. And then suddenly people are open-minded to different kind of things. And then you have different elements that suddenly, were not that crystal clear before, becomes very clear that you can use those and take advantage of them. So, for example, we have an organic product we call Amu Organic Wine. And here it was very much to find out we had some very nice juice uh, that we tried to uh, make more and more approachable. Being sort of very special kind of wine, we were able to make the tannins a bit more mellow and more approachable. And suddenly we had a very, very nice juicy style of wine that we knew were appealing to a lot of people. So by having that kind of product and we knew our data is and we had the cost price, suddenly we could make prices that were much more approachable for a lot of consumers. So we suddenly were able to make wine that cost $10, $12. So we, we reached out to a lot more people. I was able to, because of my cost price, because of the style of wine, I was able to go in and communicate in a different way. And here we took it to say, okay, what we want here is we want to have an organic product. We know we got the quality now that will appeal to a lot of consumers. Here it's a matter of communicating. So here we were very confident about it. And then we wanted to say, okay, but why be another organic wine? So we needed to add an element. And this is where we're including our, in our proposal to our consumers that every time we sold a bottle or a bag and box, we would plant a tree. So that's very much our way of going around it. So we have to have a lot of element. And if we can add... An extra element, that's how we try to keep our competitive edge. So you mentioned you use global data. What data do they provide you? How does that play into the market research to develop these wines? Well, basically, when you use global data as one of uh, several providers is to support your decision. 
I can have some ideas about, I believe that the markets go in a certain direction, but sometimes it's not only about what I believe in, it's about if I can come to the buy and say, listen, I can see the last three, four, five years trend has been so-and-so in the market. It gives much more credibility. And that's why when you're smaller, you can go in and be a little bit more cheeky. I think think so-and-so. But when you start to play on the bigger scene, people want proof. So this is what is important when you have use a provider like Global Data. They're able to collect all these data for you. Sometimes you have to do a lot of work in cleaning the data, but that's what it does. And that's what it gives you as a tool. And do you do other research on your consumers? In the ideal world, you could do like a Pepsi versus Coke challenge or something like that. It's a very American, I think, thing. But We do sort of some local things we've also done. I have to say they're pretty complicated. There's a lot of noise that you have to take away when you do this. You have to give the artistic freedom, but you also have to give the boundaries to get the right quality. So that we do, but also we, we take all the magazine we can get hold of. And that's both, that could be grocery magazine, it could be wine magazine, all these things. And all that knowledge together is then put into a big pot and where we can sort of use all the stuff. It's a lot of ongoing reading, 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 which is super, super important. So I'm curious on how the end concept kind of comes together. So a lot of times consumers, what they say they want and what they actually want can sometimes be quite different. And so the question becomes, in terms of you're developing a product for consumer taste, is it consumer taste-led? Are you doing testing and feedback and iterating on it? Or is it purely product-driven based on like this narrative story that you're crafting for this market based on your data? It's a mix of both things because you're absolutely right, Robert, in the way that if I ask a question, sometimes people like to please me. They give me the answer I would like to hear. So of course, in certain markets, particularly my own market, Denmark, it's a lot of noise. I have to probably take 50% away from what they're saying to give myself some kind of direction. So based on the experience I got now, I need to filter a lot on these things. And then I come down to the sort of real data of what I need. It's a mix of several things, I would say. I'm curious on how often is the story or the narrative behind like why it's named or what the wine stands for? How important is that for you in your products for your different markets? We actually talked about it an hour ago. We had a meeting where we have a presentation to a major client two weeks time where we have a seminar with this client. One of the things we want to sort of put on, on our top priority again is about what is the purpose of the product? What is the storytelling? So we needed a lot more USPs where maybe been through a period where there's a lot of beautiful labels out there. We want a lot of more USP in the future as well. That coming down, where does the product come from? What is the unit about this region? What about the winemaker and what is the story about the winemaker? Something when you go in and there's a lost soul as a consumer, you have something to hang on to apart from the label is pretty. So we'll try to add a little bit of information and facts about it so the consumer have a little bit more to uh, make a decision on. Because I can say personally, I'm a sucker for the milk I buy locally. I buy an organic milk, semi-skimmed milk, and I see this couple on the carton of the milk I buy. And that gives me some kind of credibility that this couple of hardworking farmers are making a milk that they believe is a good product to me. So that's the kind of thing I very much buy into. Are they exceptionally beautiful couple farming on your milk? It's a drawing. It's a bit cartoony, but it works for me. And I'm a simple consumer here because it gives some kind of genuine expression. I always smile when I go out of the grocery shop because I did it again. I was emotionally driven and I like the start saying, I know this milk comes from this farm. So that place of scent, I feel very good about. I can buy this milk and I know it comes from this area. That sort of kind of traceability we would like to buy more into. 
when we make our products in the future and try to use these kind of elements in making a more original story. So I'm curious as a side question that we're, now that we're talking, if I put story on the table and price on the table, at what point does like the consumer be like, I want a story because I'm paying a premium or I'm paying a little bit more than the wine or the, the wine next to me that doesn't have that? Like at what price point does that story matter for the consumer? Another thing that came out of the discussion we had today is that we wanted to really, really make sure that we are the ambassador of affordable luxury. You don't need to be sort of a high income earner to have these more unique products. We want to make it accessible to a lot of different consumers. There's no doubt about the more things you add on, potentially it could be more expensive. By saying affordable luxury, we would like to make a wine to put it into your comparison that cost $9.99 or $11.99, but it actually tastes like $14.99. That's, for me, affordable luxury, both from a packaging point of view and from a consumer experience. Got it. And so I guess keeping on that thread, so if you're in this $9.99 to $11.99 price point, but you want to taste like that, do you also do packaging like the next level up in terms of that $14.99? Correct. We have a marketing team of four people in our team that specialize in that, and they are industrial specialists where we go in and use a lot of time on the different packaging. And that is a journey before you start to release it. There's a lot of trial internally, a lot of trial and error before we nail it. Because you have to do all kinds of tests with the different kind of bottles, with the kind of paper, all these kind of things, color tests and all that. So that is a key element, what you're asking for here. We all get attracted to something that looks beautiful. So that is very, very important to us. Yeah, I'm just curious because at $3, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in, in the percentage of that bottle of wine, it's actually quite significant. And so I am curious on if you're in that price point of that $9.99 to $11.99, but you want to look like a $14.99 and taste like a $14.99, like clearly you have the wine part down. But I'm curious on what are some of the considerations for packaging that you think differentiate that $3 gap that you want to look that part? The interesting thing is, if you look at it, the more exclusive product looks, the more elegant it looks. It becomes less noisy because it stands for something more refined. You hit a certain price point and then some people want something that's not so busy. So it's to find that sort of fine, fine balance that you don't lose the consumer by being too sophisticated. But you have something where you say, okay, I want to treat myself to something special. You have that kind of product and you have that kind of good feeling about it. By taking this product with you home and have it on the table, mm, I made a good choice. That's the kind of emotional sensation we would like to gain with the consumer. And so that I'm hearing mostly label art packaging, but I am curious about bottle or closure. How important did those become? Those have a direct cost to you as well. We can only do this because we have our size of by doing 1.1 million cases. So we can drive down the cost on these uh, dry goods materials because they are very expensive. So we can go in and have a dialogue with some of our suppliers and that's how we can our more niche product can benefit from us having a buying power on the more commercial glasses. That's how you do the trick. And in terms of you sell quite a bit of wine or you make quite a bit of wine, which example or product from Hemican Sellers do you think best does this? Best looks sophisticated, looks at that affordable luxury space and looks that next tier up? Well, we had a product that we launched years ago and where we have upgraded. It's a rosé wine that called Mirada Rosé. And then here we're taking a wine we have identified an area in the eastern part of La Mancha, very close to an area called La Requena, which is at the border between La Mancha and the Comunidad Valenciana. It's very elevated, 900 meters above the sea level. So it's got that kind of coolness. It's warm during the day, but it's cool at night. So you have a much more refined fruit. So we have access to the fruit. We are working with the agronomist. We have our own winemaker project there. We have defined what kind of flavors we want from the yeast. We want berry fruit. 
We want citrus fruit. We have uh, extended time on at least. We have a special bottle. All these kind of element we have together. This is what we have a clear idea what we want. So we have this sort of a very fragrant kind of flavored uh, wine, very persistent aftertaste, but elegant. And I have that kind of Provence color. So I think here we've got a packaging that looks like affordable luxury. It looks nice. I mean, it's something I want to take home. And something when I drink it, yeah, I want more. That's some example how we like to work. And just remind us, Nicholas, what was that rosé called? It's called Mirada. Mirada Rosé. And we are super proud of it because this is really a teamwork where a lot of wine makes been together. And we've done a lot of different trials from different fields and to find out exactly how is the exact recipe. And I think the only way you can say it's successful is when you get the repeat buy and when you get good depletion. So this consumer are the king here and they tell us if it's good or not. And uh, here we have a nice steady increase year by year on this product, which makes us very proud. Great. And so earlier you mentioned you had some juice that was like very bold and flavorful. How do you go about creating your wines? Do you start with a product that you have access to or do you start with you want to do a region or grape variety? How do you go about thinking about creating the wine? Many times, because we are what you call, as a company, we are what you call asset light. So we use other people's facilities. Last year, we had 25th anniversary. So we know a lot of these uh, colleagues through many years, we use other people's facilities. So you, it's what I call uh, friendly competitors. When we are at the fairs, we are competing. And when it's over, we drink beers. But they have a certain style they want to pursue. We have a certain style they want to pursue. And we want to go with a modern, more fresh style of wine. And they can have, for many historic reasons, another style they want to pursue. That's how we would like to go around. We have the facility. Then we got to look at exactly what kind of vineyards we have available. So we have a clear planning of what we want to do before. Then, of course, there's something called nature <laughs> that decide if we're going to succeed or not. And that's why we, when we do this project, we have a lot of different, which are different places because we want to avoid to fall into the trap that uh, you have hailstorm and you're wiped out. So we need to make sure that we can have limit these, these kind of things. We had, for example, with our Chardonnays, 80,000 kilos that got lost because there was one specific area. And luckily we had planned. We have some very nice shot in different places. So that's how we reduce the risk. So it's a very much sort of a logic approach. And it's about where can we have these different old vines. And old vines is the key for us. When we can get hold of old vines, we will go for that because they give a kind of, in our opinion, a more unique expression. They have a much more balanced fruit, if I may say. So it sounds like you contract out or you rent facilities for the winemaking. You find vineyards. You, do you own any of the vineyards? We have our own winemakers. So the own winemakers have the protocol. So we have our own protocol of how we want to do it, but we rent the facilities. And that's what we call ourselves asset light. So we buy a service by using their facilities. So we both have long-term rented vineyards from a contract, long-term contract. And then we also have some vineyards on a shorter contract. And then obviously we're working with the guys we're working with. Uh, Sometimes we are doing harvest time. We also make some decisions and say, okay, we like to buy all these grapes from these vineyards because that's something we know these vineyards for a long time and we feel confident about them. So it's, it's different kind of approaches, if I may say. And so when you're renting the vineyards or you have contracts, long-term contracts with the vineyards, do you also have input into the viticulture to try to get the style you're looking for? Yeah, because we have a contract agronomist working for us. 
who are specializing. So we have, that, that's why I'm saying we have a protocol for what we want to do. So we have people who are, because Spain is a little bit like someplace in, in California. You have to be really, really sure that you manage some places we can potentially get too much on. So if we don't, not very careful about the way we approach the work in the vineyards, they will get sunburned. Right. And you mentioned that modern is part of your motto and, and part of the style, I guess. Is that one of the key differences between the people who work right next to you with the same vineyards that you're contracting from versus the hammock and wines? I would probably say in the following way that we have be very clear about what we want to do. So we have a clear idea when we go out and we contract the vineyard or we vinify a wine. It's because we have a client, we have a clear idea what the purpose of the product is. It's not because it's only I like. No, it's because we also know that we're catering for certain consumers. And of course, we need to be proud of what we're doing. That's an absolute minimum by all means. It's very much about an idea we've had throughout the year. So for example, from now in the spring, we are doing all the planning for this year's harvest. And I noticed a lot of your wines have are part of a DO or DOC, the regulated appellation. Is this important for you and your customers? A lot of them needs a story. And also we like to, before we go into an area, it's be very conscious about that we want the wine to taste different. If the wine comes from the north, it should have that kind of cool expression compared to some wine further south. So it's very much about each region. If we put a region on the label, it's because you should, in our opinion, be able to taste it. We like to vinify the wine in a way that we can defend and respect the tradition of the region but in a modern way. So yes, to your answer, it is important that we put a region on in most cases. Given the number of wine brands that are in the markets right now, I'm curious on how difficult or challenging is it to come up with new branding, new names, new packaging. And is that something that is a major time commitment and investment from Hammock and Sellers? It's a major headache, if I may say, <laughs> because everybody wants to have the unique names. And then now you spend far too much time on legal uh, issues because you have to take any consideration about all uh, legislation in the US, Europe, Asia, and that is very, very time consuming. And there's some lawyers that earn some good money on that. It has become a lot more complex compared to 10 years ago. It is a challenge, I would say. It's much more complicated to come up with a unique concept nowadays than in the past. So you have the product, you have the packaging, the concepts all in place. How do you think about the go-to-market strategy for a wine you're bringing to market? I mean, the go-to-market strategy is very much that we would like to link up with partners. We select uh, those people where we have a lot of confidence and there's some people who want to be first movers. Of course, you know those people who like it, but there's some people who sort of kind of semi-provoking and say, come on, come to us first and we'd like to take the chance because some people are willing to take the commercial chance, other people let other people test it before they take it on board in specific countries to work with these partners because you can do X amount of tests. You can do all the right thing. It's not necessarily that is going to be a success. Do you ever have like a contract in place with a customer, like a either a monopoly or like a total wine or something in the US prior to developing the wine? I would say many times we have a dialogue. So for example, uh, the meeting we had one hour ago is because we're going to have a seminar with a big client. Hopefully the outcome will be positive so we can kind of have a clear idea what the customer wants and we can offer them as something they are a gap in their portfolio or something like that. So yeah, you're not producing uh, 20,000 cases without a destiny. Otherwise you are 
very optimistic, I would say. And do you try to hit multiple markets at once when you launch a product or is it targeted for a specific market first and then see how it expands after that? It depends how unique the product is. If it's something that we are doing that we haven't done before, we probably go for one specific market to make a test. That could be a smaller market as well, where we want to make a, a test so we have sort of a mini idea before we're going large. Otherwise, on product where we have a clear idea of what we want to achieve, we would go for three, four, five markets to start off with to get a little bit of volume from the beginning. There's probably unique methodologies or, or things that each type of market is interested in or maybe ways that you connect and are able to sell into the market. Could you give us a sense of what are the keys to getting placements in some of your core markets, like whether it's Sweden and Norway or Denmark or the UK or US? Are they different by each market? Something about when you suddenly understand, crack the code about what is the kind of speciality about the different places. In the monopoly markets, it's very much about I can go in and do some uh, lobbying and that many times say two to three years when I can provoke a tender. And so hopefully it will go in my direction because I defined the criteria for this tender. When I'm very lucky, <laughs> I'll be able to do that. It's an open tender. And then hopefully I'll be the one that they choose in a that blind taste into that particular day. That is one way of doing it. Obviously, it's pretty complicated and you need a, very much a specialist knowledge, if I may say. The older you come as a company, of course, it's very important that you get endorsed by other people. It could be journalists, higher scores. So, for example, we know that if we get 90 plus in wine enthusiasts, the Wine Spectator, or James Suckling, all that stuff, then we have X amount of clients who openly saying, yes, then we're interested in taking your dialogue about these products. That's another um, very important approach. Is that broad or is that more for the US market or the UK market where you could go, hey, I have a 90 point $10 wine, and then all of a sudden there's a market for it? It used to be the market proposition was very much in the US and Canada, but the rest of the world has followed through here. So it's very important that when we do, if we have new clients, if we have new products, if they get endorsed by a 91, 92, 93 points and we make a nice presentation, the client will take a dialogue with us. And based on what we can offer them from a marketing perspective, we might be successful. But it's become increasingly important. Yes. Points do matter. Points do matter. And it's also because you have to take into consideration there's a lot of buyers who are quite risk adverse. And is that also true in like Asia and China and Japan? Or do they have different things that really get the sale in? They like points as well. They like that you have proven. And I think that really, maybe a little bit different. They'd like the idea that you have been successful in other markets. So they could say, oh, okay, so you have also been successful there. Wow, okay, that could be interesting. That's a little bit of a different way where US would be, okay, 93 points. Yeah, I could definitely use that. Sell at 11.99, fantastic proposition. Let's go for it. That's the difference. So outside of submitting your wines for reviews in the major trade journals, I'm curious, how much marketing and promotion do you do for your wines? And what way do you do your promotion for your wines? Marketing has become a key thing for us. And there's many different ways of investing. But obviously, social media is very important with the marketing. It's also about when you want to play with the big boys. Here, you need to be able to invest in your products on the shelves. So you need to come with X amount of money and show a willingness that you are in either for the short term or long term to make a difference because otherwise your product will be a standalone product and no product can afford that nowadays. You definitely have to make your mind up before you approach certain markets. 
you need X amount of funding with you. Otherwise, you will never get successful. And is that part of the commitment often that a lot of the people purchasing the wines that are going to be wholesaling your wines, that they're going to, they want to see the marketing commitment behind that as well? Because they want to know that you're doing stuff as well, not just their store shelves. Absolutely. Bad in mind is a lot of the places, the back office have been cut down a lot. So they don't have a lot of time per product. So they need to be sure that you are willing to help them be successful with your product within the organization. And so you mentioned social. So in between the various digital, social media, discounting, print of, or events, like which of those are the most important for the majority of your wines in your segment? The most important ones from the marketing perspective is the, the agreement you can make with your local client. It's about product placement. So if you're able to be put at the right place, at the right price point, and giving the right attention, the likelihood you'll be successful with, you, with your campaign is growing a lot. If you can mix that with endorsement of points, and if you can make a price proposition, $2 off or something like that, then suddenly it sounds very attractive to a lot of retail. Maybe we could use a brief example here. So because I, it's great that the local partners are going to tell you how to direct that investment because they know their local market. What is an example that someone has directed you and has been very successful for hammock and sellers? We do a lot of business with, for example, the biggest buy in the world, LCBO in Ontario, with their monopoly shops. And here we have a dialogue where we base it on, we have been able to show them that they have a gap in their portfolio with a product. And that is a style of wine, it's a packaging, it's a price point, and that we are willing to invest in the product throughout the years. And with a bit of luck, you will be able to be offered X amount of promotion slots. But the promotions not only make sense if you are willing to invest in the promotions. So if you're not willing to invest in those promotions, it doesn't make sense. But if you are willing to, then that's an approach that could be very beneficial because you could have a distribution of 500, 600 stores. And then with the right promo slot for two weeks or four weeks at the right place, that could make a big difference. Okay, so there it's more like high level. You've shown them a gap in their portfolio of what they're offering the consumers. And then you're committing to not only having this product, but also marketing it. Got it. Makes sense. From our point of view, of course, it's about selling as much wine, as much depletion throughout the campaign. But for them, it's about turnover. So you will only be a candidate if your product is perceived as be a strong enough candidate that they can gain X amount of turnover for a certain period. We've already covered that scores do matter for this price point. Which critics have the most influence for your markets and for this price point? Or is any score matter? Good question. I would say the American media, they're very strong there. And they are recognized worldwide. So I would probably say the wine enthusiast, Parker, Wine Spectator, James Sutherland, they are the most influential ones. So the UK ones like Chances or Decanter have less influence? They are much more useful outside US. We got a higher award, uh, 96 points for one of our Ribera wines in Decanter. Very successful. But it doesn't have the same ring in the US, the Decanter award, like the rest of the world. So outside US, I would say, yes, fantastic. <laughs> but in the US, you lean more towards your own critics. And that's also because they are, they're world famous. I'm curious because Jansen Robinson uses the 20-point scale. Does that matter for you? If she reviews and gives a 16.5 versus a 19? You need to have wine that costs about $25, $30 for that to really make a difference. Because when you have that kind of consumer, they know what about a 20-point scale. The other consumer, they struggle. Got it. Lower price points understand the 100-point scale. You have to be like fairly into and understand your wine to grok the 20-point scale. So are there life cycles to your brands? Like, What's the average lifespan of one of your brands? The reality is that you will love they consist forever, but that's not reality. I would say there's two things in it. 
everybody would like that your brand works everywhere. And the reality is that most of them are regional stars. And then you have a few brands that can work worldwide. So you can imagine that sometimes they actually jump around different places for X amount of year. I would say lifespan is between three and five years. Some a little bit longer and some a little bit shorter. But that depends on how much money you put behind them and how original they are. So you have to come out with a new cycle of brands every five years or so. Yeah, you need to keep a pipeline. And that's got something to do with a certain segment where you in can be a little bit overcrowded. So they obviously get a little bit diluted, the value proposition you come with. It doesn't have the same impact unless you come with something very, very unique. So you're not coming out with uh, Spanish seltzers right now? Unfortunately, we missed the boat. So um, <laughs> yeah, no, we're not. Are there any like leading indicators or keys that you notice when the brand is starting to come to its, the end of its life cycle? I would say that fairly quickly, you, you have an idea into the life cycle, how long it's going to last, because you can see it about distribution and it's, it's more on the depletion, how your depletion goes on campaigns. Because that got something to do when you want to squeeze the last bit out of a product, you become more aggressive because you would like to have the last bit of it and you need to be more and more aggressive to get the same out of it or a little bit more. That's how you feel it, that you need to invest more to get the same. So the effectiveness of your promotion starts to fall and then... Exactly. And that's how it works. Interesting. So I noticed on your website that corporate social responsibility is a core element of your company's culture. How does this take life for hammock and sellers? One of the things is that we're trying to see it from a sort of a consumer perspective. And we would like to like sort of look at our corpus, the responsibility aspect, this and the sustainability aspect, all these kind of things. And what I constantly feel and I've felt many times is that how is it if I'm the consumer myself, I would like to get to work with a product where I feel empowered. I can do something myself. And this is uh, where we want to do product more in the future where you as a consumer can make an active choice yourself. A bit like I'm organic. Here you can actually, by buying this product, you can plant a tree, as an example. On the CSR politics, we have made an alliance with a booking platform called goodwings.com. So all our traveling is offset by CO2. And so where we book all our hotels. And there's an agreement here. We have a part of a rainforest in Uruguay that we defend and there's a very strict sort of a mission on how you do this. And here we can go in and offset our CO2 footprint. That's kind of important to us, all these kind of elements. And this is one of elements. We will add more elements to it because we, one of the sort of my big dreams, if I may say, is to add people on that can help us find out is exactly our consumption CO2 use per unit for the wineries. So we go down very detailed and find out exactly what is it. Because we have an idea of what we're doing, but I would like to be much more precise about it. And that's going to be a tool in, in the future as well as a part of marketing. It is also something that we will give to a lot of the buyers. Because what we've seen is a lot of the boards on these multinational companies to say, well, we have to reduce our CO2 footprint by 50%. And what does that mean? Well, they just kick it down in the organization and say, well, you need to replace it. And uh, you need to come up with organic wine, sustainable products. And they all, they're desperate to say, well, how do we do that? But your problem, fight out of it. And this is where we need to come in as a supplier and help these guys become with the solution. This is where we are beginning of a journey, which is crazy interesting. We did do an interview with the IWCA, the International Wineries for Climate Action. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Torres in Spain is one of the founders. And they are very much into like calculating the entire 
greenhouse gas footprint of your particular products. Yeah. So I would like to take that kind of, these kind of values and educate my buyers so they can use it as a tool because then it can also be a criteria in the future. It's not only about only a price point. It's not only about how the label looks, how the better style. No, it's also needs how much energy do you need to produce this? Thanks that there come some new elements. And this is the kind of things we all have to get used to in the future that we will be measured in a completely different way. And this is only the beginning, that's for sure. And it goes super fast at the moment. Awesome. Well, thank you for all this great information, Nicholas. It's an interesting topic that we haven't covered in the podcast yet in terms of crafting wines at this price point for different markets. And you have a lot of information and a lot of history doing this. So it was very insightful. We want to wrap up the episode on a slightly personal note. We are curious, what was the most memorable wine you've had over the last year? And who did you drink it with? We have a project called Tosselet from Priorat, which is a little top region just south of Barcelona, where we've made wine since 2004. And I would say so when we look at sort of historically how we made wine, we made our first wine, tried to make a wine without oak. We didn't want this big, bold, Parker-style wine at that time. We wanted a more sort of lean, a bit more uh, tasting the soil kind of thing. And then we managed to find some 100-year-old vines from Kerenyang. And we started our first vintages in 2013. And it's super interesting to see the evolution. And I tasted with some very good colleagues and some clients, the 17, which we're going to release soon. I like to taste a lot of fine wines, but I have to say this one did what I think fine wine when it's best can do. It was kind of an emotional journey because here, the wine, we've gone from making this bigger, bolder wine to much more refined, delicate wine, despite the wine is nearly 14.5 in alcohol. Yet the wine was delicate and it showed the typicity of the region in such a nice floral, herbaceous way, which I thought was outstanding. That was quite an uh, emotional thing. And I love when wines are able to do that. Then we've done something right. And we were all quite emotional about it because we thought, okay, we began the journey in 2004 and this is the level that we come to. So that was important to me. I have to say that made a big impact on me. I'm curious personally now, do you end up keeping some of your back vintages so you can taste that journey over time? Yep, we do. Yes, awesome. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for this interview. We really appreciate your time and connecting with us and, and giving us all this information. Robert, Peter, it's been an absolute true pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this interview. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>